Today I invite you to draw your sword and turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. This morning I want to talk to you about dealing with the broom tree blues. 1 Kings chapter 19. I'll be reading the first 18 verses of that 19th chapter. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, how he had killed all the prophets with a sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I don't make your life like one of them. Elijah was afraid, and he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and he fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank, then lay back down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank, and strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, put your prophets to death with a sword. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. The Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart, shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, put your prophets to death with a sword, and I... I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat from Abel-Mehaleh, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death anyone who escapes the sword of Jehu. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bound down to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated.
Have you ever had to deal with the broom tree blues? Jennifer did. On that faithful Wednesday when her boss called her into his office and told her to clean out her desk by the end of the day and the only reason cited was because of corporate downsizing. Chad knew what it felt like for his fun-loving three-year-old boy was diagnosed with leukemia. Larry understood what it was to deal with the broom tree blues. On that day that he discovered that his wife of 27 years had been having a five-year affair with Larry's best friend and business partner. Sally, the high school homecoming queen, she knew what it was like to experience the broom tree blues. In a matter of one week, she failed the calculus test. She got dumped by her boyfriend, who incidentally was the quarterback of the varsity football team. And she got cut from the cheerleading squad for no apparent reason. William knew what it was like to experience the broom tree blues. He was only two years into retirement. He had worked all of his life for this, but nearly to the day of his retirement, His wife of 45 years was diagnosed with cancer. And now, two years later, she had fought a brilliant fight. But a month ago, she died. And he stood over the casket of his lovely wife of 45 years, and he wondered how in the world he was going to make it because he would tell you he's never felt loneliness like he's felt in these days. Mary knew what it felt like. In a matter of less than seven seconds, the tornado ripped through her town, destroyed all of her earthly possessions, everything that she owned, everything she had worked for, all of her family memorabilia swept away in a matter of seconds. She stood there and wondered, how am I going to put the pieces back together? Have you ever experienced the broom tree blues? If you haven't, You just might. The World Health Organization estimates and reports that 25% of adults at some point in their lifetime are diagnosed with clinical depression. The American Psychiatric Association defines and describes depression in this way. It is a lack of interest in the routine aspects of life exhibited by at least four symptoms over a minimum period of time of two weeks. Oh, the symptoms of depression can be numerous and widespread. Those symptoms could include feelings of worthlessness and hopelessness, overwhelming inappropriate guilt, the inability to concentrate, unable to make decisions, overwhelming fatigue, insomnia, inability to sleep, hypersomnia, sleeping far too much, having a preoccupation with death, even suicidal thoughts. The causes of depression are as numerous as the symptoms. Some of those causes could include stress or guilt. Heredity is a big one. Also, a significant life change. Even though there are numerous widespread uh, symptoms and causes, there does seem to be one thread that weaves itself through all cases of depression. And it's the thread of a sense of loss. 
Regardless of who the person is that is depressed, every depressed person feels some sense of loss. Now the loss could be real or it could be perceived, but regardless, there's a loss of person or possession or uh, prestige, significance or stuff in life. There's some sense of loss. And depression is no respecter of persons. It doesn't discriminate. It can affect the young and the old, the rich and the poor, male and female, non-Christians and Christians. In fact, it's reported that depression in America is the second leading cause today of disability, only pacing behind cardiovascular disease. Have you ever experienced the broom tree blues? If you have, you're not by yourself. Some of God's best and brightest have dealt with this condition. A case in point, a great case in point, is the person Elijah. The last time we saw Elijah, he was standing victorious atop Mount Mount Carmel. He was there, he had decisively defeated the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. There, God had used him as a powerful weapon to display and to describe how God is the one true God of the universe. And God ties a majestic bow on this miraculous event, for over the horizon, there pops a rain cloud. Now keep in mind, it had not rained for three years. Not one raindrop had fallen from the sky. Not one drop of dew had ever been found on the ground for three years. And all of a sudden, God makes good on his promise and he sends a rain cloud. Elijah says to King Ahab, you better hit your chariot and get down this mountain before the rain stops you. You would think that the Israelites would carry Elijah down Mount Carmel like a victorious coach is carted off the field after a Super Bowl victory. But the Bible says that the power and spirit of the Lord came upon Elijah. He tucked his cloak in his belt and he ran to Jezreel. He ran with such pace and such force that he outmaneuvered the strongest, fastest chariot Israel had to offer, the one carrying King Ahab. In fact, he beat Ahab to Jezreel. You know how far it is from Mount Carmel to Jezreel? It's 27 miles. What the Bible is telling us in so many words is that Elijah, after this mountaintop experience, he runs a marathon in record time. He gets to Jezreel before Ahab gets to Jezreel. And I suspect that it's after running this marathon and he is physically exhausted. He is fatigued. He is spent. And probably that shaped the way he heard This message that came from Jezebel. Because once Ahab got back to Jezreel, he told that wicked first lady everything that had happened on Mount Carmel. And she sent a messenger to the prophet Elijah. And she said, and I quote, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow you don't end up like one of my prophets. This death threat rattled the cage of Elijah. It sent him in a downward spiral into depression. So he was afraid and he ran for his life. Bible says he ran to Beersheba. There he left his servant 
traveled a day's journey into the desert, found a broom tree, and collapsed underneath it. Now, if you're not careful, those details would just whoop, gloss right past you and go right over your head. Until you stop and realize it is 90 miles from Jezreel to Beersheba. 90 miles. This prophet runs not only a marathon, but the next day he runs 90 miles and he makes his way to the southernmost tip of the southern kingdom of Judah and he makes his way down there to Beersheba. He leaves his servant there. He travels another day's journey into the desert and finds a broom tree and collapses underneath it. So in a span of a couple of days, Elijah has run uh, 120 miles. How long would it take you to run 120 miles? Sometimes I feel like it would take me 120 days. 120 miles in just a couple of days. He is spent. He is exhausted. He is emotionally, physically, spiritually fatigued. By the time he gets alone in the desert, which is a description not only of his physical geography, but also his spiritual geography, He is in the desert, he is spent, he is exhausted, he's in the tailspin of depression. He finds a broom tree, which provided a great deal of shade. He sat under it, and he prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. I'm the only one left. I might as well die. I'm no better than my ancestors. And he fell asleep. Have you ever had to deal with the broom tree blues? Ever to that point where you just wanted to check out? Just wanted to quit, throw in the towel? Elijah was ready to resign his post as prophet. Elijah wanted God to aid him in exiting this world and going to heaven. Elijah just said, I I just want to quit. I'm so depressed. I'm so down. Just take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. In this story, I I want you to notice how God deals with Elijah. Because the thesis of the sermon goes something like this. That God deals with you and your broom tree experiences the same way that God dealt with Elijah in his broom tree experiences. I want you to have four takeaways from this message. There are four takeaways I want you to walk away with from this text. And all of them have to do with God. How God deals with his prophet is the same way that God deals with his children, with his people. That's you and that's me. First, God replenished the prophet's physical needs. In verse 5, all of a sudden, an angel of the Lord woke up the prophet. Get up and eat. And there by his head was a cake of bread that had been baked over live coals. And right beside it was a jar of water. Elijah got up, he ate and he drank and he went back to sleep. A second time, the angel of the Lord woke up the prophet. Get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. And so the prophet got up, he ate and he drank and he went back to sleep. Before God could deal With the spiritual issues of Elijah, he had to replenish the physical needs of the prophet. There's a lesson in that. In fact, Jesus echoes this in his ministry. Do you realize that outside the resurrection of Christ, there's only one miracle that's recorded 
in all four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There are some miracles that are recorded in one of the Gospels. Other miracles are recorded in two of the Gospels. Still other miracles that are recorded in three of the Gospels. But outside the resurrection, there's only one miracle that Jesus performs that is recorded in all four of the New Testament Gospels. And that miracle is the feeding of the 5,000. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all say it and see it as a valuable, miraculous event. And they include it in their Gospel rendering. That story goes something like this, that Jesus is there, a large crowd gathers, he ministers to them. It gets late in the day. That moment when you think that Jesus would give kind of the keynote address, the final sermon, the uh, holy homily, you would think that he would say something uh, that would be very profound and then send them away. But Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, you give them something to eat. The disciples look around, they realize there's no McDonald's, there's no Taco Bell, there's no restaurants for them to go to. The crowd is so large that it's Philip who says, if we had eight months of wages, that wouldn't even be enough money to get everybody one piece of bread. For most estimate that on that day, some 20,000 people had gathered around Jesus. There were 5,000 men, not counting the women and children, probably 5,000 women and at least 10,000 children. So together, 20,000 individuals. And Jesus understood that before he could go deeper with their spiritual needs, he needed to address their physical needs. They were hungry and they needed something to eat. You find them something to eat, he said to his disciples. All they could find was a little bitty lunch that some boy had brought of five loaves of bread and two fish. And when we hear that, we think to ourselves, we want to applaud that mother, right? I mean, she's the only one who has the forethought of giving Johnny a little lunch. Only one in the crowd that says, I think it'd be a good idea if I give him some lunch. And so on the one hand, we applaud this mother because she gives this little boy a lunch. Then the next breath, we question this mother. What mother in her right mind would give Johnny five loaves of bread for lunch? If that little boy ate five loaves of bread, it'd leave him constipated for days, wouldn't it? What mother would do that? She's crazy. But then you got to realize, we're not talking about five loaves of wonder bread. We're talking about five little pieces of bread. Not even a piece of bread. It's more like five crackers. And the two fish, we're not talking about eight-pound groupers here. We're talking about little sardines, little minnows. So all they could find was a little boy who had a lunch. I don't know how they got it from him. (laughs) I don't know how they got it from the little boy. Maybe they just took it and stole it. But literally, they come back to Jesus and they said, hey, Jesus, all we could find were a few crackers and a couple of sardines. And Jesus says, that's enough. You sit everybody down in groups of hundreds and fifties and tens. And he prayed and he blessed it and he multiplied and he gave it to his disciples who in turn gave it to the crowd. And everybody ate and they had their full. Everybody ate and they had their fill and then they collected all that was left over. Not all the scraps that were there on the hillside, but that that was left over at the feet of Jesus. And there were 12 baskets left over. Baskets, not a large basket, it's a little knapsack. It's, it's what the disciples had. It's what they carried their things in. It's what they carried the food in. And how many disciples are there? 12. How many baskets left over? 12. So every gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they see this as a mighty miracle that not one morsel is wasted. 
that Jesus provides perfectly and powerfully for his people. And they understand that in order for Jesus to get to the deeper spiritual needs, he has to first address those physical needs of his people. What Jesus did in that story, God does for the prophet Elijah. Not once, but twice. Get up and eat. There's bread to eat and water to drink. Because God replenishes the prophet's physical needs. It's at this point that we at least have to ask the question in the context of our story, when we at least have to ask the question and allow it to kind of roll over in our minds, and the question is this, what role does medicine play for the believer when it comes to being prescribed antidepressants? What role does medicine play? A couple different trains of thought. There are some Christians today who say, you know what, you shouldn't have to take any medication. Other Christians who say, oh no, give me, give me the medication, that plus some. I really want a lot of it. And so there are a couple of different trains of thought. What's the appropriate train of thought? What role does medication play? Does God use medication to help replenish the physical needs of his people? What, what role does it play? How much should we use it? Should we use it at all? I came across an article that was simply entitled The Gospel According to Prozac. The title itself captured my attention. It was written by a guy named uh, Clark Barshinger. I don't know anything about Clark Barshinger. I just read the article because I thought it was a pretty cool title. The Gospel According to Prozac. And in that article, this is what he said. He said the Christian community has to act responsibly when it comes to antidepressants. That's a direct quote. You may think to yourself, that's a quote of the obvious. I mean, that's keen insight into the obvious, don't you think, pastor? I mean, we need to act responsibly. But he's saying something. He's actually saying a mouthful when he says that. What he's acknowledging is that there are times, there are seasons, there are examples, there are moments, there are crises in your life where it's very appropriate for you to be prescribed Prozac or Paxil or Zoloft or some type of medication. But we also must all agree that we live in a over-medicated society, right? We over-medicate our children and we over-medicate adults. So we have to act responsibly with this. Is it possible for God to use medication to help replenish the physical needs of his people? Absolutely. But we have to realize that pill does not replace the Prince of Peace. I've had people, good Christians, who have told me, I've got to have my happy pill. If I have my happy pill, everything will be okay. But if I go a day without my happy pill, watch out. And I wonder to myself, because I don't verbally say this, and probably I should, but I don't always say, I wonder if they, if they have the same vim and vigor with their communion with Christ. I've got to have my communion with Christ today. If I don't have my communion with Christ today, watch out. <laughs> because let me tell you, church, that pill does not replace the Prince of Peace. And medication is not our Messiah. You are more than a collection of chemicals. You are more than just a brain and a body. You are far more than just neurotransmitters, one of which is serotonin, that, uh, that they say uh, keeps the balance of wellness in your life. You are more than just a hodgepodge of chemicals. You are a creation of God. You are made in the very image of God. You are a child of God. And so God is God all by himself. So 
Barsinger is exactly right. As the Christian community, we have to act responsibly. Can God use this to help replenish our physical needs? Yes. Does this replace God? No. In our story, God replenishes the physical needs of Elijah, and I promise you, God will replenish your physical needs. Whenever you find yourself in that broom tree experience, our God will supply. Second takeaway is that God reminded the prophet of his powerful provisions. Have you ever noticed how in the course of the life of Elijah, in just these last three weeks that we've been studying his life, have you noticed how often bread and water pop up? Bread and water is all over the place. In 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 2, We are told that the Lord took the prophet to the Kareth Ravine and there he was fed twice a day bread delivered by ravens. And he drank the water from the clear brook. Bread and water. And how did God provide the bread? Through ravens. Ravens are the selfish cousins of of, uh, of vultures, right? I mean, this, this is this is a scavenger type of animal. You would think that, that that raven would eat the bread, not deliver it, but God provides in a miraculous way for Elijah. Bread and water. You get to 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 10, and Elijah's in Zarephath. It's that city of smelting. It's that place of refining. It's that place where God sends the prophet, and he says that an anonymous widow is going to provide for all of your needs. And so he says to this woman, hey, will you bake me a piece of bread and bring me a glass of water? And she says, sorry about your luck. I don't know that you realize this, but I'm here collecting sticks so I can make a meal for myself and my son so we may eat it and then die. And Elijah says, oh, don't worry about that. But first, will you bake me a piece of bread and bring me a glass of water? In a miraculous, powerful way, God provided in Zarephath, not only for Elijah, but also for the widow and her son. We didn't cover this story, but in 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah bumps into Obadiah. Obadiah is another man of God, another prophet of the Lord. In the course of conversation, Obadiah says to Elijah, hey, look, I've got a hundred of God's prophets And I've got them stashed away in two different caves, 50 prophets in each cave. And I am providing for them bread and water. Bread and water pops up all the time. Here in our story, not once, but twice. God wakes up Elijah and he smells the bread. Smell is a powerful reminder. He smells the bread cooking and he sees that there's a tall cold glass of water, bread and water. Why is this so important? Because I think that God uses sometimes the most common elements of life as spiritual flashbacks. When you have a broom tree blue experience, it is tempting to fear and to think that what you're currently going through is too big for God. And many times God gives us spiritual flashbacks 
He used bread and water, bread and water that reminded the prophet of the Kareth Ravine, bread and water that reminded him of Zarephath, bread and water that reminded him of his conversation with Obadiah, bread and water, constantly bread and water, bread and water. What is this? This is a spiritual flashback. God provided in my past. He'll certainly provide in this moment. There's a great temptation to fear that when I'm under the broom tree and I'm having the broom tree blues, that what I'm currently going through is far too big for God. Yet can I remind you this morning that our God is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask, think, or imagine? In fact, I wish you would tell your neighbor, our God is able. Go ahead and do it. Now actually say it like you mean it. Now say it like you have some conviction. Our God is able. He is able even when you find yourself in the broom tree blues. Our God is able. You call it depression, I call it the broom tree blues. Our God is able. He's helped you in the past. He can help you in this moment. There is no problem that's too big. There's no prognosis that's too bleak. There is no sin that's too gross. There's no past that's too embarrassing. There's no marriage that's too messed up. There's no child that's too wayward. There's no church that's too conflicted. There's no city that's too destroyed. Now our God is able to do immeasurably more we can ever ask, think, or imagine. Our God is able. The hymn writer was right. Uh, Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. And grace has brought me safe thus far. And grace will lead me home. Has God helped you in the past? Yes. Will he help you in the present? Yes. Will he help you in the future? Yes. Why? Because our God is able. In this story, God reminds the prophet of his powerful provision. There's a third takeaway, that God responds to the prophet with compassion. He takes him on a 40-day journey, brings him to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. Scripture also calls this place Mount Sinai. He takes him to the same spot where Moses was called through a burning bush that was on fire but not being consumed, called him to the same spot where the Israelites of old had returned to worship the Lord, called him to the same spot where Moses had gone on top Mount Sinai, and there God had etched on tablets of stone the Ten Commandments. Brought him to that same monumental place and said, Elijah, what are you doing here? I got a bone to pick with you, God. I'm mad, upset, frustrated. The Israelites have rejected your covenants. They have torn down your altars. They are knocking out one by one all your prophets by the sword. I'm the only one left and now they're coming after me. Truth be told, I'm not real convinced that Elijah wanted to die. Because if he wanted to die, all he had to do was show himself in front of Jezebel and she would have obliged. But he went out of his way to avoid Jezebel. Just like so many times, people who say they want to die, they don't really want to die. It's just really a call for help. This is what Elijah's doing. He is calling out to God for help. I just want to die because I'm the only one left. And what does God do? God does not reprimand him. God does not scold him. But think about it. Who does Elijah think he is? How can you talk to God that way and still live? 
How can you wag your finger in the face of God and get away with it? Who does Elijah think he is? I mean, where was he when God created the sun and the stars and the moon? Where was he when he told the ocean only come so far? Where was Elijah? Elijah was nowhere to be found, but yet Elijah stands up and he's got a bone to pick with God. I'm mad and I have every right to be mad. And God, instead of reprimanding him, even instead of correcting him, He invites him to stand in his holy presence. That's compassion. God invited Elijah to stand in his holy presence. When you hear me, come to the mouth of the cave. There was a mighty wind. God went in the wind. A thunderous earthquake. God went in the earthquake. A fire. God was not in the fire. A gentle voice, a voice that Elijah recognized. That's the voice that called me. That's the voice that saved me. That's the voice that commissioned me. That's the voice that has spoken to me all these years. That's the voice of my God. And he goes out to the entrance of the cave. Now, what's all this business about the wind and the earthquake and the fire? I think, once again, those are spiritual flashbacks that God is allowing him to flash back to Mount Carmel. That's exactly what happens on Mount Carmel. When God answers, there is wind, there is earthquake, certainly there is fire that licks up all of the water around the trough of of the altar of God. And there, God answered in a mighty way. And sometimes, God answers in mighty majestic ways. But then there are other times. That God doesn't answer in wind, earthquakes, and fire. Sometimes it's just a gentle whisper. And when God whispers, do you recognize his voice? Can you hear him calling your name? Elijah, Elijah, come, let's commune. Stand with me. You are my child. Do you hear God when he whispers your name? It's a voice that you recognize. And Elijah goes out and God once again asks the same question. Elijah, now we're face to face. What are you doing here? It's a good question, isn't it? In fact, if I were to ask you, what are you doing here today? How would you answer? Some of you would say, I've got a bone to pick with God. I've got a bone to pick with the church in general. The church has hurt me in the past. Uh, preacher, I got something against you too. I, I need some help with my mortgage. I need some help with my marriage. My family's all messed up. I need help there too. I, I came here today hoping that something would be said to help me as I deal with my boss. I was hoping something would be said so that my parents would listen to me and understand and get me because I don't think they do. I've got a lot of problems. I've got a lot of issues. I've got a lot of frustration. What are you here to? Why did you come today? Why are you here? We could give a laundry list of excuses. Do you know why we're here? Because we need to stand in the presence of God. That's why we're here. I mean, you can call it whatever you want to. You can mask it over with other things. But fundamentally, your greatest need is simply to stand in the presence of God. That's why you're here. Elijah, what are you doing here? And he says the same thing. I think he says it with a different demeanor, though. I'm here because the Israelites have rejected your covenant and they've torn down your altars and they're killing all of your prophets one by one and I'm the only one left. All the while, God responds with compassion. There's a fourth takeaway. The fourth takeaway is this. 
that God restores hope to the prophet. Elijah, I'm not going to let you resign your post. And Elijah, I'm not even going to answer your prayer to take your life. Aren't you glad that God doesn't give us everything we ask for? Elijah, go back the way you came. I need you to anoint the next king of Aram, which is Syria. I need you to anoint the next king of Israel. And I need you to anoint Elisha, who is going to be your successor. Elijah, I'm not through with you. My jurisdiction goes well beyond you. Not only do I have jurisdiction in Israel, but also all the nations of the world. Because on your way, you're going to anoint the next king of Syria. On the way, you're going to anoint the next king of Israel. On the way, you're going to anoint your next successor. So I've got jurisdiction that goes to you, through you, and beyond you. I'm still in charge, and I'm not done with you yet. One of the greatest messages that could come from a broom tree experience is for you to realize God is not through with you yet. Because when God is through with you, he's going to take you home. Not before, not after, but in that moment. So if you're having a broom tree experience, if you're dealing with a broom tree blues, just realize God's not done with you yet. And oh, by the way, there are 7,000 in Israel who never bowed down to Baal. I know, Elijah, you feel like you're all by yourself. You feel like you're alone. You feel like you're abandoned. But you're not by yourself. I've got a holy remnant. 7,000, in fact. Church, there always has been a remnant. There always will be a remnant. There's always a remnant of God's faithful people. Always. I don't care what the talking heads say. I don't care what's going on in the culture. I don't care what society wants to stuff down your throat. There is always a believing remnant of God. Always. And so what the Lord says to Elijah is, listen, I'm going to restore some hope in your life. There are 7,000 that have never bowed the knee and never kissed the feet of Baal. When I read this story, this is helpful to me. I hope it's helpful to you. Because there are times that, like you, I find myself collapsed under a broom tree, having a pity party, being depressed, feeling worthless, feeling useless, helpless, not knowing how things are going to be fixed. I know what you know. I know what it is to be under the broom tree. And on my best days, when I'm dealing with the broom tree blues, I try to remind myself that Jesus climbed another tree. It's the tree of Calvary. And on that tree, he nailed my broom tree. Because all of my feelings of hopelessness were nailed to the cross. All of my feelings of frustration nailed to the cross. All of my depression and your depression nailed to the cross. All of our insecurities nailed to the cross. All of our sin nailed to the cross. All of our past nailed to the cross. Everything's been nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. So praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. And I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is a broom tree. All other ground is sinking sand. So because he lives, I can face tomorrow. And because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. And life is worth a living just because he lives. 
Have you ever had to deal with the broom tree blues? I bet you have. How do you deal with it? Well, for me, I read a story like this one, tucked away in 1 Kings. I see how God dealt with Elijah and how God dealt with Elijah. That's how he deals with you and me. And I think that we also have the advantage that we're on this side of Calvary. And we know what God has done with all of our insecurities and all of our loneliness and all of our feelings of worthlessness. My friend, they've been nailed to the tree of Calvary. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. And Lord, on this day, we give you this invitation. If there's somebody here that's never accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, and Lord, I pray, Lord Jesus, that by your Spirit, you'll move upon their heart and help them to come and flock to you. Lord, I also pray for all of the believers that are in the house and those listening to my voice, and you know exactly who, you're, who you are. And uh, Lord, those individuals know what it is to deal with broom tree blues. And this morning, I pray that today, during this invitation, we'll cast all of our cares upon you because you care so very much for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.